This week, the Comics Guys Explain, Steve Ditko, Part 2. Thank you, Ben. And yes, this time we'll be going through the second part of uh, Steve Ditko's biography. Um, so where we last left off, uh, Ditko was, uh, had had it up to here. Uh, you can't <laughs> see holding my hand over my head. Um, with working with Stanley. Um, so what happens next, Darren? Right. Like we said last week, uh, you know, or last episode, Stan was probably the worst possible boss for a guy like Ditko, right? Stan was all about self-promotion. He was kind of a bit of a clown on purpose. You know, he would say anything uh, to sell, you know, his stuff. And he was very much entertained by and kind of like got you entertained by creating this like false sense that we were all somehow in this together, right? Like Stan's bullpen stuff was all about you learning who and caring who the artists and writers were, right? Like you referred to them all by their first names. Nobody had ever done this before in, in comics the way that Stan had, right? Like Stan made you feel that you knew Stan and Jack and Steve and Flo and you know all of these other people uh, involved in it. And most of the rest of the people in the Marvel offices didn't care, right? Or were kind of into it like Roy Thomas was, right? Steve hated every bit of this. Steve hated to be a celebrity. He hated to have people feel like they knew him. Uh, he hated to like have to discuss, you know, like his, the, the work that he was doing other than just the work. Right. Like he was like, I have told you everything I want to tell you by giving you this artwork. Um, and beyond that, I basically just want to be left alone. Uh, he refused to go to conventions. He refused to give interviews and, you know, just generally despised all of like the fake camaraderie that Stan was trying to create. And by the late 60s, uh, he Ditko just couldn't take it anymore. And he quit. He, he quit fairly gradually, right? Like he stopped doing Strange Tales stories and that sort of thing first. Uh, and then he, you know, eventually got to stopping doing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Um, and the first places that he went after that, basically, was back to Charlton, where he felt comfortable. Even though it meant taking a sizable pay disruption, right? Like Charlton couldn't pay him anything close to what he had been making doing Spider-Man. Uh, Charlton, you know, promised to leave him alone, right? It was still Dick Giordano and those guys who were over there. And so uh, with, you know, like the freedom working at Charlton, Ditko now had kind of gotten the taste of doing superheroes, right? Like when he had first worked for Charlton working on, on Captain Adam, he didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't really understand superhero storytelling. Uh, but when he went back to Charlton several years later, he brought back Captain Adam as a character. And it's a much stronger run. Not only is it like, you know, Ditko's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, art that is significant, but like his plotting is stronger. Uh, he kind of like understands the character more and he's much more interested in kind of like the philosophies of superheroing, right? And Captain Adam is very much uh, a, you know, like a, he, he's an explorer, he's a scientist, but he's an astronaut, right? And he works with the military. So he has a very kind of uh, uh, military bearing to what he's doing, 
right? Like at this, this is a time when astronauts are all the craze, right? Like this is, you know, this is the, the, the days of, you know, Neil Armstrong and that sort of thing, right? So uh, Captain Adam is very much of that kind of like strong, stoic, uh, you know, just get things done, all business kind of like superheroes. Yeah, this is the version that still shows up in DC sometimes. Right? Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Right. At the same time, uh, Charlton owns the rights at this point to the Blue Beetle. And the Blue Beetle, of course, is a Golden Age, you know, character, uh, had been uh, not terribly, a, you know, kind of like interesting as a character. He was a very straightforward kind of dull character. And Ditko decides to revamp him uh, very early in the strip, basically by killing off the old one, right? The Golden Age uh, uh, Blue Beetle dies and a student of his kind of like takes up the costume. And that character is very much kind of like a continuation of uh, Ditko's work on Spider-Man. He's uh, wisecracking. He's agile. Uh, he's smart. He's a he's an inventor. You know, he's got the, an insect theme and everything. I mean, you, you know, and he's fighting kind of like wacky villains, right? These these kind of like demented, uh, almost insane, basically, you know, kind of like criminals. And it's very much in in the style of uh, what he'd been doing with Spider-Man. At the same time, he is still interested in um, you know his his philosophical stuff that he's doing, and he basically gets goes to work for or, or writes some stories for Wally Wood. Wally Wood was trying to make it as an indie publisher at this point, and he did a Wally Wood did a comic called Wit's End, uh, W I T Z E N D, uh, and that was going to be a collection of creator owned. Uh, you know, material that like nobody could get published in mainstream comics, right? He was this Wallywood kind of like trying to join the underground scene of R. Crumb and the Furry Freak Brothers and that kind of thing. Um, and he invited Ditko to write for it, and Ditko created a superhero that was going to kind of like explore Ditko's fascination with objectivism, and he was going to be called Mister A from the objectivist, from the Ayn Rand, uh, you know, kind of like famous phrase, A equals A, right? Um, objectivism is, uh, as a philosophy, we'll do kind of like just the quick version of this for if you're not familiar with it, it was kind of a reaction to romanticism, right? What's important in objectivism is that facts are objectively true. There are things that are true. There are things that are not true. And your feelings don't enter into it, right? Like emotions are not trustworthy. The important thing is to be rational. Reason is the only way to understand reality. Uh, and when you kind of like, you know, like continue to apply that, you will come to understand that self-interest and your enlightened self-interest uh, and your individual pursuit of happiness and satisfaction is the highest moral duty. It's immoral to sacrifice for others. And it's immoral to sacrifice others for yourself. You need to take care of yourself. You are the 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 you know kind of like the the most important moral figure in the universe is you yourself. Um, along with that, objectivism kind of assumes that you know laissez-faire capitalism is awesome. Uh, the government should only basically be a policeman to protect rights, uh, and otherwise should be kept entirely out. The state should be entirely kept out of economics. Um, it's important to walk away from a job rather than to compromise your integrity. Right, um, but you can do work that does not compromise your integrity. That, like hack work is professional, right? But you have to understand that that's what you're doing, 
right? Art and hack work are two entirely different things. Doing hack work for money is a perfectly acceptable thing to do as long as you then use that money to create art, right? Undisturbed. That's, you know, Ditko has become, shall we say, you know, kind of like enveloped in this, right? Like in this philosophy. Uh, he is uh, obsessive by nature to start out with. He is no longer hanging out with his friends, right? Er he, Eric Stanton has basically moved out on him and uh, got his, uh, you know, gotten married. Ditko doesn't really have a lot of other close friends. He's becoming kind of a, you know, uh, kind of a hermit. Right, and he's like really obsessive about these ideas, and so he creates Mr. A as a way to discuss his objectivist ideas. Mr. A uh, is a reporter Rex Gaines who talks to the reader all the time. Uh, you know, he gives speeches in the comics all the time. Most of them are objectivist rants about things like how welfare recipients are basically thieves. People should be taught to think, not feel. That kind of thing. Mr. A wears a metal face mask with like a single expression on it, right? It's, it's Dr. Doom, but worse, right? Like it's just this like grim face all the time that hides any emotion that he might actually be showing, right? It just, it, it never reveals anything about him. And it's literally made of metal, right? Um, and so uh, he would beat up criminals and then he would leave a calling card that was literally just half black and half white and have nothing else to say on it. Hmm. Right. That was his that was like representing his philosophy. Mr. A is absolutely Steve Ditko's brain working on paper. Right. It's like literally like his id is just kind of like exploded all over the page here. You know, of, of this is what he's is important to him and what he's thinking about. And it's what he wants to do. Of course, Wits End sells like hundreds of copies. Right. He can't make a living uh, uh, doing these. Right. So what he does is he goes back to Charlton and creates kind of a more sanitized, more superhero-y version of Mr. A that he can possibly sell to a superhero publisher. And he creates the question. And the question, just like Mr. A, is a crusading reporter who makes speeches all the time while he's exposing corrupt officials and mobsters and that sort of thing. But he's not quite as extreme as Mr. A. He's not as violent quite as Mr. A. He's not as willing to kill bad guys as Mr. A is. Um, and instead of wearing uh, the metal face mask that Mr. A does, uh, the question's face mask is completely blank, right? It's made of like pseudoderm. It's like fake skin so that he also doesn't have a facial expression, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it completely like, you know, hides his identity, hides his thoughts and his feelings the way that people should hide their thoughts and their feelings. <laughs> right, like for the, that did go believes. Right, this is—it's a heroic thing to do to keep your emotions inside, to not you know waste other people's time with feelings and stuff like that. Right, um, and it's the question that everybody kind of associates with Alan Moore creating Rorschach. Right, that 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 that's Moore's version of him, but really Rorschach is Mister A. Right, it's just that nobody was that familiar with Mister A as a character because he sold much less than the question did. The question was modestly successful as a superhero uh, uh, for Charlton. That's interesting. I didn't know about Mr. A before. I always thought that uh, it was just straight up uh, the question. Yeah, no, the question was like the sanitized version of him, right? It was like the version that he thought he could sell, uh, you know, publicly. Mr. A was kind of like the pure uncut, you know, uh, uh, craziness, right? Yeah. And you, so you've got these ideas 
you know, uh, these 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 concepts for a character. And this is uh, coming from the guy, right? Remember this: that whose most famous character to this point, the thing everybody knows about him came from a line that was written by Stan Lee, of course, not by Ditko, who says, with great power comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Spider-Man is the least objectivist superhero out there, right? Spider-Man gets punished all the time. Every time Spider-Man thinks of himself first, every time Spider-Man does not concern himself with the, you know, the welfare of the people around him, Spider-Man gets crushed for it, right? Like his Uncle Ben gets shot because... Spider-Man is behaving like a rationalist, right? Like Spider-Man's like, why should I bother to chase this bad guy, right? It's, I, you know, nobody's paying me for this, right? And then that guy comes back and kills Uncle Ben, right? It's the exact opposite of what Ditko would wind up being obsessed with as a concept, right? Like the, a, a Ditko hero later would be like, no, your responsibility is to objective truth and personal integrity and your responsibility, yes, you punish bad guys, but you don't help the unworthy. Why would you do that? They're not worthy. Right? If Uncle Ben wasn't supposed to die, he would have fought him himself. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's this isn't your problem, Pete. Right? Would be Steve Ditko's response. It's exactly what like Mr. A would say to Spider-Man. You know, like go mm-hmm. feel free to walk away. Use your powers, get rich, you know, keep being on TV, right? Like keep wrestling. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like that was the yeah. kind of thing. But but do be sure when somebody violates the 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 social order. Right. If you see somebody who's a corrupt official, or if you see a criminal committing a crime, yeah, go beat the snot out of them. That's cool, you know. But like, do that as you know, like part of society. You know, you're, that's, you don't take that. This is not a personal, uh, you know, like concern for you, right? And only do that when the cops aren't capable, right? Like, if the cops can do it, they don't need you. Um, while he's doing this, of course, while he's writing this, you know borderline nutty stuff um at charlton he is still kind of like beloved as a creator right i mean he's helpful all the new people are coming into charlton all the time because charlton is one of the lowest paying things and like once you get good you stop basically being willing to work for charlton's terrible page rates right mm-hmm. so there are new people coming in all the time at charlton and ditko once again by now is kind of he's the most famous guy at charlton and he's pretty much the oldest guy there Right at this point, now he's in his you know early forties, and once again, there's all these twenty-year-olds coming in. Denny O'Neill, Jim Aparo, all of these people, you know, like get their starts at Charlton. And two a one, they all say Steve Ditko was the nicest guy in the world. Could not have been you know friendlier, more helpful in helping me get started, etc. He was just fabulous, you know. Mm-hmm. DC uh, in 1968. Uh, notices or is is seeing Charlton is is kind of dying, right? It's dying on the vine. Their superheroes aren't selling. The anthology stuff isn't selling. Um, Marvel and DC have kind of like you know solidified their place as like the as as one and two basically in this you know competition for sales. And DC decides it's going to start raiding Charlton for talent. The one thing that tar- Charlton has is cheap young talent, and we should grab some of it. And they go to Ditko and say, "We would like to hire you." to come do some stuff for us. We promise we will give you, you know, like the kind of freedom that Charlton did. Um, and hey, bring some people with you from Charlton when you come. You you look over their roster of, of, of creatives and tell us who's good and, you know, we'll, we'll bring them on too. And so Ditko not only comes over, he basically brings with him Dick Giordano, 
who will not only be, you know, pretty damn good for DC for years, but will eventually become the president of the company. Uh, bring over uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, Steve Skates, and James Paro. Basically, all come over to DC on Ditko's recommendation. You know, DC didn't really know any of those guys at the time. Jim Aparo, of course, became, you know, one of the most famous uh, uh, Batman artists, uh, you know, Aquaman, Deadman, all that kind of stuff. Denny O'Neill, obviously, you know, uh, did the Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff with Neil Adams and uh, a crapload of Batman himself. I mean, these are, you know, enormous guys for for DC to bring in. Uh, the first couple of titles Ditko does for them... Um, are fascinating, even though they don't really sell very well. Uh, he co-creates The Creeper with Denny O'Neill. Hmm. Uh, and then he co-creates Hawk and Dove with Steve Skates. Uh, within a few months, Ditko realizes DC didn't really mean all that about we're going to give you all the freedom that Charlton, right? They just don't operate that way. They right. think they're being nice. They think they're being hands-off or whatever. It's still way more interference than Ditko is willing to put up with. <laughs> right. And so he basically lasts about six issues at both of those titles. Um, actually, it's, it's six of Creeper and it's two of Hawk and Dove. Jeez. Um, because he's arguing with everybody. He's arguing with Skates about Hawk and Dove, first of all. The premise of Hawk and Dove, obviously, is like we've got this one, these two brothers who get superpowers, one of whom is very kind of like uh, activist and warlike and, you know, is, uh, is, believes that you know like you can go out and kind of like force yourself on the world right in your your moral code and the brother is like kind of is a pacifist he doesn't want to fight he wants to get along he wants to be peaceful with everything right and skates very much wants to say in this series that both of those are valid viewpoints mm -hmm. right that it's interesting to see you know like a war like a hawkish character and a dovish character deal with the same problem Ditko is like, well, Hawk is awesome and Dove sucks, right? <laughs> Dove is wrong all the time. In fact, I get upset every time you let Dove do something cool, <laughs> right? Because Dove should just serve as an example of how not to be. It's like Goofus and Gallant, the superheroes, <laughs> right? He's just, he just only should exist to be a bad example. And DC's like, why would we do a comic book about a bad example? That doesn't make any sense, right? So no, you can't do that story. And Ditko's like, fine, I quit, right? That's just you know that's that's Ditko's response basically to you know anybody telling him no at that point uh similarly he doesn't like how the creeper is being handled either and he quits that uh, uh you know fairly fairly quickly right around this time of course Ditko's tuberculosis comes back too it's been 15 years but he has another kind of like outbreak of it and he basically spends another year at home in bed now, of course, he doesn't have to go back to his parents. He's got the finances to take care of himself. But it does mean he's burning through a lot of kind of like his personal money, uh, you know, living by himself with tuberculosis, right? Like having to, having to, to overcome it. Um, when he gets back in, you know, 1970-71, starts trying to find work again, he does some work for Charlton. Charlton is barely, you know, paying the bills. Um, and their stuff is not successful, and his stuff for them is not successful. He starts working for other indie presses, you know, like basically anybody who will pay, except for DC and Marvel, because he doesn't want to work for either of them, right? Um, he uh, even when Martin Goodman leaves Marvel to go create Atlas Seaboard uh, as kind of like you know to prove that like you know 
Stan Lee isn't the guy who you, that you think he is, right? And 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 Martin Goodman's effort to kind of like spite Marvel by creating a new comic series, um, they managed to offer Ditko enough money to come, uh, you know, like do a couple of titles for them, uh, which he does. Which kind of like leads to the question of like, was it really Martin Goodman that he, you know, like had the problem with? Because he didn't seem to have a problem working with him ten years later, hmm. you know. Um, but regardless. Atlas Seaboard also didn't work, so he didn't stay there. And finally, he's kind of like at a loss of, you know, like finding anybody to work with. He won't work for Lee, but he'll try again with DC. And he goes back to DC in 1975. They revive the Creeper, and he creates a couple of new characters. Uh, he creates a fantasy hero called Stalker, and he creates Shade the Changing Man which is just a bizarro series about a, you know, policeman from another dimension uh, fighting weird aliens that is just, you know, the kind of, like, unhinged Ditko cosmic art that you haven't seen since Doctor Strange, right? Like, is in this, uh, is in Shade the Changing Man. Oh. Um, unfortunately, he's there for about a year, and then the DC implosion happens. Uh, you know, DC has like a financial crisis and cancels everything new, including all of Ditko's stuff, even if it was selling, which it really wasn't selling that great. But it was, you know, it was doing okay and would not have been killed except for the fact that DC needed to kill basically everything that wasn't Superman and Batman, you know, that year. Um, he does a few issues of like surviving titles that lived through the implosion. Uh, he creates the uh, Prince Gavin version of Starman and Adventure. He does some Legion of Superheroes stuff. And he starts looking for other indie titles. When the indie, the new indie explosion of the 80s happens, Ditko is perfectly willing to go work for all of them, right? He does some stuff for Pacific. He does some stuff for Eclipse. He does some stuff for Archie, actually, where he will meet, uh, basically, he'll make a new best friend in Robin Snyder. Robin Snyder is his editor. He had worked with him at Charlton, and Robin Snyder became the editor at Archie. And hired Ditko basically as a friend uh, to bring him on, and you know they will stay friends for years. Um, for Renegade Press in the mid '80s, he creates another objectivist superhero like Mister A, uh, who's called Static, who has nothing to do with the Static that you know. This guy wears like a suit of power armor, and like Mister A, goes around giving speeches about you know how welfare sucks. Um, but none of it really works, right? Like, not he's 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 much more famous for the stuff in his past at this point. And while a lot of indie titles will say, hey, isn't it awesome we have Steve Ditko working for us? He's a legend, you know. But nothing that he's doing currently is really kind of going anywhere. And now he's, you know, getting up to be close to 60. And, uh, you know, he's kind of not, he's not the hip thing anymore. You know, he eventually... It's a shame sorry? he never got to write, uh, to write Superman because... Uh... I think Zack Snyder could have really drawn a lot from this version. <laughs> Walked around berating people on welfare. Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you know. I'm I'm sure the uh, the the Snyder versions of most of the DC characters probably you know like warmed Ditko's hard little heart, right? So, <laughs> so by the time by now, Marvel has uh you know Marvel and Stanley have separate way i've gone separate ways right like lee has gone off to california he's trying to make movies he has nothing to do with the day-to-day -day operations at marvel and the people at marvel kind of reach out to ditko and say hey you know let's let you know bygones be bygones you know let's celebrate the old good times kind of thing why don't you come back and do some work for us um and 
nobody really seems to think that his style is good for like quote unquote realistic characters anymore right like his characters are so mannered they speak weirdly he still draws everybody like it's the 1940s you know like the way they dress and everything and his characters are all so kind of just like mannered and weird that the marvel writers are like well you know here's the thing why don't we just take advantage of that why don't we lean into that let's let him do all of our weird robot stuff right cuz weird robots they all talk like steve ditko anyway that's fine so very quickly like ditko has kind of like gets a little stable of titles that he's working on at marvel in the early 80s doing machine man he does the art for micronauts for a bit uh, and then after Micronauts kind of like goes away, he goes, he does uh, Transformers. And the last two years, basically, of uh, ROM, Space Knight, are co-plotted and scripted and drawn by Steve Ditko, right? Because the editorial department is like, we're not giving him any humans, <laughs> you know? But like mechanical superheroes, that's right up his alley. And frankly, once again, Ditko's fine with it, right? Because they're letting him do what he wants to do. And Ditko reportedly at this time was saying there was occasionally like an effort to say, hey, why don't you do some other character? And Ditko was refusing to work on any character that did not meet his personal moral code, right? Like if a hero wasn't heroic enough, Ditko didn't want anything to do with them, right? Punisher, out the door. Wolverine, out the door. Not even close, right? These guys are not heroic enough to be worthy of like Ditko's art, right? Spider-Man the way he was done in the early 80s. Nope, that's not my Spider-Man. I don't want anything to do with him. Furthermore, Ditko at this point was now saying, you know what? I will not work on any title that has magical or supernatural elements because I don't believe in magic. Magic is not real. Robots could be real. Wait, the guy who Aliens could be Doctor real. Strange? What's that? The guy who created Doctor Strange. Created Doctor Strange was now refusing to do any part, any stories that had anything to do with magic because magic isn't real. Well, that's just a shame. And magic can't be real, right? Like, you can't prove that there aren't aliens. You can't prove that, like, we won't eventually have talking intelligent robots. So that's okay. I can do those. But I will not do anything that's got anything to do with magic or the supernatural. No vampires, no werewolves, no whatever. You know, I won't do any of that. And I won't do any superheroes that have magic in their backstories. So no Thor, no Spider-Man, uh, no uh, Doctor Strange, no anything. And as you say, this is from the guy you know, who basically created Dr. Strange, right? But he had so kind of like become objectivist and rationalist over the succeeding 20 years that he was completely rejecting that work now, right? He was very, remained very kind of like professional about it though, right? Like, I mean, even at, he's, you know, in his 60s, he's still turning his stuff in on time. He's very fast. And given these kind of like weird restrictions on what he would work with, his stuff is still kind of cool, right? Um, he and Tom DeFalco say, you know, it would be cool to create a new teenage hero the way you did with Spider-Man. Let's start over that way. Let's tell another story about a kid learning to be a hero, right? And Ditko is like, sure, absolutely, whatever. I'll go along with that. And he and DeFalco create Speedball in 1988. Cool. Now, Speedball, not a smash, but it was pretty solid. It was a success, you know? And Ditko's making some money, right? Um, Ditko actually did the first 10 issues of the of Speedball's own title, as well as his first appearance, which was in a Spider-Man annual. Um, in 1992, he and Will Murray 
create Squirrel Girl. Now, what Ditko was doing with Squirrel Girl turned out to be extremely different from where she eventually went as a character. But it's still his name. It's still his art originally on that first version of the character, right? It's a bunch of other people are responsible for the Squirrel Girl that you know, for the humor, for, you know, everything you know about uh, modern Squirrel Girl uh, came from Ryan North and Erica Henderson. But those people, you know, like were, were responsible for the version of Squirrel Girl, the kind of like meta humor of Squirrel Girl. That's Ditko would not have anything to do with meta humor, right? He was genuinely creating a superhero who had squirrel powers. He, he was 100% serious about doing that. Um, so he's, uh, you know, he's, he's continuing to do those. He's not getting enough work to work full time for them, but he's working for Marvel. Jim Shooter decides it would be a big plus uh, marketing-wise to have people like Ditko at his new title. So he goes over to Valiant with Shooter and then Defiant. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's uh, doing stuff for, for Shooter as well. Um, Douglas Wolk talks about him in the New York Times later and says, uh, by the 70s, Ditko was regarded as a slightly old-fashioned oddball. By the 80s, he was a complete commercial has-been, picking up wretched work-for-hire gigs. Following the example of John Galt, Ditko hacked out money-making work, saving his care for the crabbed objectivist screeds he would publish with tiny presses. And boy, could Ditko hack. <laughs> Seeing samples of his Transformers coloring book and his big boy comics is like hearing Orson Welles sell frozen peas. He uh, quits doing mainstream comics entirely by 1998. He's retired out of it entirely at that point. By that point, he's 71. But he keeps doing Mr. A comics periodically. And he keeps publishing uh, with Robin Snyder these like objectivist screed titles that are basically Steve Ditko writes about philosophy. Steve Ditko writes about politics. Steve Ditko writes about whatever is you know, crammed in his head uh, about objectivism. Right. Um, many of these uh, titles, he does uh, a series called The Avenging Mind, Ditko, etc., and 25 sequels to The Avenging Mind of Steve Ditko um, and several collections of his work that are variously titled the Steve Ditko packages. Um, the only he keeps using the same name for multiple different titles that are coming out so if you're actually like trying to collect them you have to note how many pages are in the one that you're referring to right the steve ditko 160 page package is different from the steve ditko 176 page package and that's the only way collectors can tell them apart because they all have the same like cover matter and logo and info on them they all just say the steve ditko package right (laughs) um starting in 2013 robin snyder uh, the guy who had been working with him at Charlton and Archie and basically has become his best friend and one of the few people he trusted anymore, uh, hits Kickstarter, right? Like Kickstarter is invented and Robin Snyder goes right there with him and uh, they start kickstarting all of their material. Oh. And the last 20 titles that Steve Ditko put out of his own personal stuff, each of them were kickstarted by fans. And they were all, each one of them funded. Each one of them was a success, right? So... Yeah, all of that continued to work, right? And, you know, people, of course, kept trying to reach him, trying to reach out to him. And, uh, you know, um, 
interact with him, you know, because he was such like a, you know, legendary figure. He was there at all of these important times in history and everybody still looks back at those Spider-Man titles and the Doctor Strange and everything else that he did and those early 70s weird DC titles, right? Like the Creeper is amazing, you know? Um, and they want to talk to him about it. They wanted to know about it. And of course he would refuse to have anything to do with it, right? Um, in 2007, BBC, did a documentary called In Search of Steve Ditko. And uh, the guy who is uh, uh, in, in heaven, he refused to have any participation in it, uh, refused to be filmed, and threw the documentary filmmakers out of his office. He would just have nothing to do with it. Um, Neil Gaiman actually was working with the people who were doing with the documentary, and he tried to reach out to him personally to kind of like see if there was some way that they could you know, uh, uh, like moderate this, right? Like if there was a situation under which he would be willing to discuss any of this. And even though Ditko quite likes Neil Gaiman personally, he was like, no, fuck you, out, get out. I'm not having anything to do with this. Uh, another guy, uh, Blake Bell, wrote a biography of Ditko that was called Strange and Stranger, The World of Steve Ditko. Again, uh, Bell, you know, reached out to Ditko to have him involved. Ditko refused to have anything to do with it. And in his letter back to Bell, basically refusing to have anything to do with it, refers to the book as a poison sandwich. So, you know, he continued to be Steve Ditko, you know, like living by himself in, you know, like his 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 studio in, in Manhattan, basically, uh, completely separated from everybody. He claims, uh, or he did, he claimed, uh, that when the Spider-Man films started to came, come out, uh, he told people that he did not make any money off of them. Uh, this seems to be untrue, <laughs> right? There are there is plenty of evidence, uh, including eyewitnesses who you know like saw the checks that he received large checks from Marvel uh, as you know like part of his royalty rates for the from the movies fairly regularly. So, what exactly was going on there? Like, why why would he lie about uh, receiving them? Nobody's entirely sure exactly what was going on there. With as like odd as he's become, maybe he just wasn't cashing them or something. Like you know, I, that's an excellent. Yeah, we have no evidence one way or the other. Maybe they're yeah. in the stack somewhere. Uh, he got a Inkpot Award from San Diego Comic Con that for his lifetime achievement. They were putting him in like their, the San Diego Comic Con Hall of Fame. And uh, Denis Lubert, who was the publisher of Renegade Press was there at the award ceremony because she was getting uh, an award too, right? And so since she was acting as his publisher for some of his indie stuff, she, of course, he didn't come, you know, to the ceremony. She accepted the award on his behalf and uh, tried to send it. She sent it to, you know, like the, the, the nice little like golden ink pot or whatever, you know, statue that he got. She sent it to Ditko and he was outraged and returned it to her. Uh, you know, in a box with a note that said, uh, awards bleed the artist and make us compete against each other. They are the most horrible things in the world. How dare you accept this on my behalf? You know, I, it's a lifetime. If it was any other kind of award, maybe, but it's a life. He's not competing against anyone. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, weird. So despite the fact that he's not making that much money, you know, in his later years, he absolutely refused to sell any of his original art which would have been worth hundreds of thousands of dollars at least, right? Like he kept it all. In fact, he kind of like famously used his own original art as like cutting boards for, uh, you know, doing later art, 
<laughs> right? He would just literally like use the old, uh, you know, the old uh, pages, the old, uh, you know, paperboard pages uh, to to cut other stuff with. Um, and uh, he was found in his apartment, uh, June 29th, uh, 2018. He had been dead for several days at that point from a myocardial infarction at the age of 90. Uh, there was a great many, uh, you know, kind of like very touching tributes. Um, and many of those tributes, you know, from like people who had been greatly influenced by him, you know, like growing up as artists for it, everybody talked about what a wonderful guy he was. And then everybody had a funny story of him being a jerk to them. Right. <laughs> and you weren't you weren't somebody unless Steve Ditko had been, you know, like rude to you, not in public because he would never be rude to your face. Right. But if he hadn't said something nasty, you know, in like an interaction with him, uh, you know, like privately or something like that, then, you know, you clearly hadn't made it until you had until you had. Right. <laughs> you know, Neil Gaiman, all of these like, you know, famous artists talking about the, their interactions with him. Um, and I want to end this as you know, coming to kind of like the end of the story with a quote from literally the last interview he ever did. And it was for a Marvel fan magazine back in 1968, which he did kind of like agree to participate in. And it was kind of like the last time it was right around the time that he had had enough. Right. And in it, he said, I prefer conflicts that are based on reality than based on fantasy. When you get wound up with supervillains, super fantastic gadgets, super incredible action, everything has to be made so deliberately that it all becomes senseless. It boils down to what you want a story to stand for. Every person, whether he wants to be or not, is in a continuous struggle, and that struggle is to keep his mind from being corrupted. And I think that pretty much is, you know, sums up what he was about. He had the most integrity, I think. Uh, even if it was in service to sometimes some absolutely nutty ideas of pretty much anybody I can think of in the history of comics. Yeah. And it would be interesting, I think, since it is so clear, I think it is so obvious. You, you hate to you know like diagnose somebody you've never met or anything, but it seems so obvious after the fact that he was kind of like on the spectrum of some sort, right? Mm. It would be very interesting to see you know, how different things could have been if that was the sort of thing that we recognized in the yeah. you know 40s 50s 60s or whatever if that was a thing that could have been addressed uh you know with like kind of modern awareness of uh you know uh, of uh of autism of you know uh neurotypicality right uh um whether or not he could have lived he, whether he could have been happier right, right. <laughs> you know um, because the, just there was no there was no ability to kind of like recognize, right? Like you were just you know if if you were like that in the forties, fifties, sixties, or whatever, you were just you know hard to get along with. That was the only you know the only definition we had. Hopefully, one of these uh, biographies we do has a happier ending one day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, most of our most of our company ones like have happy endings, right? They're just boring happy endings because it's like, and then everything worked out, and everybody made a lot of money. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking mainly about the personal it's ones. It's the personal ones, right. Well, you know, yeah. A lot of the old guys just did not have terribly happy endings, and, like, the new guys aren't done, so we're not going to do a biography of, you know, Neil Gaiman yet, you know. Yeah. So. Well, thank you all for joining us. I uh, hope you learned something. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.
This week, the Comics Guys Explain Steve Ditko, Part 2.